I wanted to start this morning off with a, a bit of a Caleb fact uh, for your next trivia night. Something about me is that I have spent a great deal of my life squatting in other people's homes, legally. <laughs> Got to put that out. There's no fine print here. See, I started out at my parents' house, as one does normally, and I have spent weeks on end house-sitting and pet-sitting for friends and relatives. Uh, my family rented out a different house for a time. I spent three years living with uh, some friends of mine from college, and now I am living uh, in my own apartment with my own wife, again, legally. I can't believe y'all would laugh at that. Something fun about living in different people's homes um, and kind of under their roof is learning and acclimating towards the way that they keep their home. And so something that I've observed and had to kind of adapt to with every different space that I have stayed in for however long is kind of the level of maintenance and upkeep that people expect or hold themselves to. I've lived in homes where there have been one or more pets, and so the floors need to be regularly swept out, and dogs need to be walked at least twice a day. And there's this whole other living organism that needs to be fed and taken care of under my watch. I've been in houses where the rule is the sink is not the dish storage facility. That needs to be washed immediately and put in the dishwasher or the drying rack, whatever your house calls it. I've been in homes that are very uh, economically minded where they say, hey, the thermostat, that's not going below 74 and you just got to live with it. In Houston, that's a tough one. But as the owners of their homes, as the people who, whose roof I am staying under, I defer to that, right? Because they have the authority to lay down these ground rules. They have the authority to have, uphold, and set these expectations, and something that's been interesting to me by living according to these expectations and learning how people choose to exercise their authority is what it says about their priorities. See, for some people, neatness is the priority. And so every ground and surface needs to be kept clean. For some people, you know, economy is their priority. So the gas bill, the water bill, the electric bill, that's got to stay low. So you have to be very sparing with your usage, be thrifty. Some people, it's a certain mood or ambiance that we just kind of have to maintain, put the cushions where they belong, right? It all communicates their priorities. And it's something that you even see in like parenting, right? I'm not a parent, but I've known many parents, uh, two especially. Um, and that wasn't a joke. Different, you hear in different parents, they have different priorities and different things that they want to uphold for their children. Some kids have to wake up at a certain hour. Some kids have to go to bed at a certain hour. Kids have different permissions and restrictions and rules to follow. I, for one, was not allowed to watch Scooby-Doo or the Power Rangers, but I was allowed to play Pokemon. And so if that logic doesn't make sense to you, my dad's back there. You can ask him all about it. I've yet to get an answer. But the thing that we need to understand about this is that these are not standards that people are living up to. It's not that parents or, house or people who in their homes have different standards that are higher or lower than each other. It's priorities. It communicates what's important to you in your home, in your life, in your family. See, because I think we can look from the outside at so many people at what they're doing and the decisions they're making and the expectations that they're setting, and we don't get it because it's not what we would do. And we get very confused about the what. What are they doing? What are they deciding to do? When if we would just kind of stand back for a second and instead ask the question, why? What does this say about what's important to them? 
I think we would have a greater understanding of the person and their decisions, don't you? And I think also this is the same headspace that we're called to get in when we think about God, because we don't need to flex here. This is a strange book sometimes. It is full of things that I have not, probably would not do, and a lot of people who made a lot of decisions, and a God who's made a lot of decisions that on the surface doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes. But see, the thing is, God hasn't called us to kind of shrug and walk in confusion forever. He wants to be known. He gave us this book so that we could know him and understand him for who he truly is. And that's the purpose of this series that we're in, representing Jesus. We want to look at God in an honest light to see who he truly is. And so today, what we're going to do is try to explore and discover the priorities of Jesus. And we're going to look at two specific stories that will hopefully illuminate that for us. So, Would you turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 2? If you're unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, uh, John is one of the first books in what is called the New Testament. It's going to be over halfway through the Bible. Um, So there's four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So turn to that. A little background while you're flipping is that John is the fourth of these four books that are known as Gospels. And the Gospels are an account of the life and ministry of Jesus while he was on this earth. John was uh, one of the two Gospels that was actually written by one of Jesus' followers, his 12 closest followers, called his disciples or his apostles. And the book of John in particular is very unique because the author, John, was widely considered by Scripture to be one of the closest friends Jesus had while he was on earth. And so as far as eyewitness accounts, what John writes about is something that is very up close, very in-depth, and a very personal take on the life and the heart of Jesus. And so, for our purposes of looking at the priorities of Jesus, we get to really see firsthand through the eyes and the words of somebody who may have known him better than just about anyone on earth, as far as personal friends and accounts go. So... Let's read this passage. We're going to start in verse 1 and explore up close the priorities of Jesus and what is important to him. What makes Jesus move? Let's read. Verse 1 says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so there's a lot in this passage. 
And no doubt many of you have heard a lot of people commentating, speculating, sharing their opinions on what is actually going on, what this Bible actually says. But before we do any of that, I think in order to properly understand it, we need to focus first on a little bitty word at the very end there. So would you highlight in verse 11 the word signs for me? It says this is the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And see, John is very um, deliberate with that word signs because in the new testament um he often uses the word signs to refer to this other word that we know miracles see in the gospel of john he refers to the miracles of jesus as signs and the miracles are these supernatural actions that that jesus performs while he's on this earth they are things that can't be explained by natural order or natural law. They would not have happened on their own. And no human being could have caused it to happen either. So these miracles are things that are strictly Jesus. Well, then the question is, why does John refer to them as signs? He doesn't say the word miracle. He says the word signs. Well, what is a sign? What is a sign meant to do? A sign is meant to point us towards something. It's meant to indicate or inform us, you know, stop, one way, yield, you missed your exit. These are what signs do for us. They direct our attention towards something and tell us that we should pay attention to this. And so something for us to understand about Jesus's miracles, which by the way, were not allegory. They weren't poetic license or some metaphor or something Jesus talked about doing. He literally did them. There is historic account Jesus performed these miracles. But if they are signs, then what we need to ask ourselves is what is this sign pointing my attention towards? What is it alerting me to or informing me of? You see, we can get, again, so bogged down by the what. What is Jesus doing? Is he turning it to wine? Is it just grape juice? We don't know. We weren't invited to this wedding. But Jesus is saying, no, pay attention to the why. Why did I do this? So as we read on, let's have that question in our heads. Why? What is this sign pointing me towards? And a little context on this uh, scenario here. First century weddings were kind of different than uh, yours uh, or mine or just weddings in the modern day in that first century weddings would typically last about a week long. A week long wedding reception. Can you imagine the food bill? Tip everybody. But... And yeah, that's true. The hosts of the wedding, the bridegroom and his family, were responsible for supplying food and drink for this entire occasion, for the whole week. And so according to Scripture, we're probably about halfway through, we're probably about day three of this wedding right now, when the wine runs out, party foul. But it's a little further, it's a little deeper than that because the bridegroom is responsible for bringing the, the wine because in this time, in this culture, wine was symbolic of plentiful, of blessing, of celebration and joy. So by supplying the wine, the bridegroom is saying, come drink of this and share in my gladness over this happy occasion. But now we're in a bit of a problem where the symbol of gladness has run out halfway through. This does not... This is not good symbolism to start out a, a marriage. And so what we have here is what is at best a major social faux pas and what is at worst a terrible omen that the gladness and celebration and supply will run out of somebody's marriage. 
And not only that, but there's a big stigma now on these people who failed to supply for the entire wedding feast. So the family would be socially stigmatized. This married couple is now beginning their life together, kind of in despondency and disgrace. So there's a lot more risk than suddenly it becoming a dry wedding, is that now somebody is risking shame, they're risking ill omen on their life and on their marriage. And Mary, mother of Jesus, uh, who was probably, based on like her knowledge of what's going on and her involvement in commanding servants, probably had something to do with helping stock up this wedding or serving uh, the bridegroom's family. She notices the situation, and she goes, and she makes passive suggestion to her son, conveniently the Messiah, in a way that only a mother could, right? She says, hey, Jesus, uh, they're all out of wine. Would be nice if somebody here was the son of God and could do something about that. <laughs> Just saying. And Jesus' response is classic son talk as well. Saying, woman, why are you involving me? Why are you making this my problem? I'm sure there are plenty of sons of the room who've probably spoken this way, maybe a bit less righteously to their mothers as well. It's okay. There's grace for that. But look at what he says here when he says, why do you involve me? Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Would you highlight that in verse uh, four? My hour has not yet come. See, what Jesus is saying here is, mom, this is not what I came to earth for. And it's not yet time for me to present myself to the world. The hour of me going public with my identity and my mission, it's not this. But Mary knows her son, she trusts in his heart, and she knows that he will not just stand by and ignore somebody in need. And so she tells the servants, look, just do what he tells you to do. And Jesus has them take these six jars that are meant for ritual cleansing and has them fill to the brim with water. And then they bring a cup of that water to the master of the banquet. This is basically kind of the MC or the, you know, the master of ceremonies for this week-long reception. They bring it to him, and somewhere in between the jar of water and the MC's hand, that glass of water has become the finest of wines. And he tastes it, and he praises the bridegroom for saving the best for last. Because normally, you would say you put the best stuff out first while it's all fresh in everybody's minds, while everybody's of a capacity to enjoy and appreciate it, and then you give the cheap stuff later when the party starts dwindling down. People start going home. But he's saying, no, you've saved the very best for last. This is better than anything that came before it. And so Jesus' clandestine miracle here has surpassed even the greatest that the bridegroom or anybody at that party had to offer, showing to a very select few a glimpse into what he is capable of. Jesus here is moving the natural world and expressing authority over creation. It's the very first miracle that Jesus performed, and highlight this, through which he revealed his glory. Even if just to a few, he's revealing an idea of who he is. But why? What is this sign pointing us to? Well, one reason is that Jesus is pointing to why he came to earth in the first place. He's alluding to a private few, his mother, his disciples, the servants, the nature of his mission here on earth. Because by keeping the wedding feast supplied, he's saying, look, I will be sufficient where you lack. 
By doing so, he's rescuing these newlyweds and their families from shame and dismay, which is what Jesus is going to do later in life. And by using waters that are intended for ritual cleansing, Jesus is showing, I'm going to wipe off the filth of this world from you and the sin that clings so closely so that you do not have to be ashamed to stand in the presence of God. And in bringing the finest wine and being the provider of the wine where this other bridegroom had fallen short, he's saying, I am the true and perfect bridegroom for all of humanity. And I invite you to take, partake in this cup of the greatest joy that will never, ever run out. I keep this stocked for all of eternity. See, Jesus is showing he has authority over the natural world to show supernatural care for the ones that he loves. So what moves Jesus? What makes Jesus move? The first thing is this, is that Jesus moves for our good. Jesus moves for our good. To show his steadfast love and kindness to those that he cares about. Because even though this was nowhere near the true purpose of his mission, Jesus showed that he was not above lending his help to those in need and rescuing people from shame. And in doing so, he's giving an early glimpse of why he came to earth and who he truly is. Jesus moves for our good. So the next story we're going to look at, you kind of just jump two verses ahead to verse 13. It takes place shortly after this wedding um, where Jesus and his disciples have now traveled to the city of Jerusalem. And there Jesus is going to make a different, less private display of his authority. And once again, he's going to show readers and the audience what matters most to him. So let's read, starting in verse 13. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, escalated, and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So, bit of a strange scene again. Now, nothing supernatural per se is happening here. There's no shifting of the weather or anything like that. But now we find a very different Jesus than all of our paintings and movies have kind of told us about. It's this Jesus who comes into the, to the temple packing heat bringing a whip in and corralling animals and literally overturning tables. I don't know about you, but I kind of grew up around this idea of Jesus where he kind of just levitates four inches off the ground. The most aggressive gesture he'll do is like this. And he kind of always speaks in this like hushed baritone of like, don't do this, my child. And that's about it. 
That's the idea of Jesus that a lot of us kind of carry with us. This sort of passive, transcendent, above it all Jesus. But no, now he's getting angry over something and moving people. And again, we see this very familiar word here. It's the word sign. So again, we need to ask ourselves, what's Jesus pointing to? What's the sign here? Well, see, the thing is, Jesus and his disciples traveled to Jerusalem to observe Passover. Highlight that. Highlight Jewish Passover. You see, Jewish Passover was probably the largest um, holy day or religious holiday for people at the time, for Jews and Gentiles alike. It was a day to commemorate God rescuing his people from slavery leading them through the wilderness and delivering them into a home that he had promised and prepared for them. And so the city of Jerusalem, particularly the temple, would be teeming with people, both Jew and Gentile, who have made a long pilgrimage to participate in the holiday and make their offerings and worship to God. So when Jesus arrives, he finds people have set up shop in the temple selling the animals that people need in order to make their sacrifices. These necessities to worship are now being peddled off inside the temple. And he's enraged and he wrecks shop and runs them out, accusing them of defiling God's house. And in this moment, he's once again displaying a different kind of authority. This time, Jesus is showing that he has the authority to speak and act on behalf of the Father's will. His indignation is showing that he has the divine authority to say when people are doing something that is out of line and out of step with God's heart. And when he's challenged on it, people ask for a sign. Highlight that word again, sign. We need to consider what the sign is pointing towards. Well, to understand why the story is the way it is, we also need to kind of understand that the English translation doesn't always give us the full picture. You see, the thing is, Jesus is not like randomly showing up and ransacking like a church bookstore or coffee shop, you know? I know many of us have like probably attended and visited churches that have those. And I don't know about you, I, as a child, didn't understand the story and kind of questioned the morality I was like, should we be selling things at church? Is somebody going to break the stuff? Like, is he going to topple the shelves? That's not what he's talking about here. Church bookstores are not evil in, in, in concept. The problem here, <laughs> the problem here is that these vendors aren't just selling different translations of the Bible. They're selling necessities to worship God. They are profiteering off of other people's need to make offering to their Lord. And so they've become these kind of middlemen in between the people and God. And it's particular here because Jesus, it says, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Because there's different kind of hierarchies to the offerings that were made back then. If you couldn't afford a sheep or a bull or a goat, they had kind of the, the poor people's offering, which would be flour or doves or a pigeon. And these people are now selling and extorting the prices even on those who are poor. So Jesus is mad because the vulnerable are being taken advantage of here. That these people have tried to become middlemen in between the vulnerable and the abused and the manipulated for them to get to God. It would be as though somebody went into your house and set up like this big mall kiosk in between you and your spouse or your parents and said, hey, if you ever want to speak to them again, you have to buy my overpriced cologne. 
and like spray it on. Otherwise, you're not allowed to talk to your husband, your wife, your parents, or whatever. And so it, and it's, it's bizarre. It's strange. But they're now gaming the system to turn God's worship towards their benefit. But there's a second thing that's sparking Jesus' actions here. Verse 14, highlight the phrase, in the temple courts. In the temple courts. We actually have a map of what the temple would look like at the time, um, or just an image of it. This is kind of the layout of the temple. And you can see kind of this outer perimeter, this large courtyard area. This would be what he's referring to as in the temple courts. But it also, in that time, went by a different name. It was often referred to as the court of the Gentiles. Because this was the only place in the temple that non-Jewish people were allowed to enter and to offer their worship to God. If they went past a certain dividing line, they would actually be under penalty of death. Like, that was how risky and serious it was. So they were only allowed in the court of the Gentiles, but now the court of the Gentiles is occupied by all these people selling all these animals. So it's not only as though a mall kiosk is being set up in your house, it's set up in your, like, little brother's bedroom. So they don't live there anymore. There's no room left for them. So the Jewish people are being extorted and manipulated, and the Gentile people are being excluded altogether. They're being forced out of the presence and nearness and worship of God. So why is Jesus causing all this commotion? Why is he flexing his divine authority? It's because of this. And this is the second main point, is that Jesus moves for God's glory. Jesus not only moves for our good, but he moves for God's glory. Jesus moves so that God is praised and worshipped by his people like he deserves. We see it in the passage where the disciples remember this, this word in the Psalms that says, zeal for your house will consume me. You can highlight that as well. Jesus is zealous over the house and the praise of God. Because these people have been taking the worship of God and were trying to twist it to their advantage. They were trying to steal what belonged to the Lord and they were hurting God's people in the process. And so what Jesus is saying is that, hey, God doesn't exist for your glory. God doesn't exist for you to make a profit or a finder's fee off of him. And Jesus was not going to let this injustice and this idolatry keep people from being near to God and from worshiping him. He's saying you can't stand between God and his people. You don't have that authority. And so in doing so, he is once again, as a sign, pointing towards his ultimate goal, which is to break down every barrier that would stand between God and man. He is positioning himself as this wall-breaking, earth-shattering force that will forever eliminate the great divide to let everyone know that they don't have to pay up front to get a ticket into the nearness of God. And no matter who you are, there is a place for you in his presence. You are not forced out of the house of God. There's a seat at the table with your name on it. And how is he going to do all this? How is he going to break all these barriers? By laying down his own life. By being the one who stands in the gap and laying it down so that anybody who places their faith in him has free, unlimited, everlasting access to the Father. He even directly tells his audience this. When they ask for a sign, he gives them kind of a challenge. You can highlight this. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He says, you want a sign? You want to test my authority? How about you kill me? 
which is, again, escalation. He's saying, why don't you kill me and destroy me? The temple I'm talking about is my own body, and I'm going to raise it up again in three days. You see, Jesus is saying, not only am I the greater bridegroom, I'm the greater temple. Because you're going to be able to get closer to God through me than you ever could through this building. And the very fact that he came to earth shows that. It is God bringing himself towards us when we could not sufficiently bring ourselves towards him. And he's, as he alludes to his great mission, he's guaranteeing, hey, if you kill me, if you destroy this temple, I'm raising it back up. Not only am I going to exercise authority over all sin and condemnation, but I'm going to show that I have authority over death itself to raise my life back up if you were dared to destroy me. You're only getting me closer to accomplishing my mission here. And why would Jesus do all this? Why would Jesus go to such lengths? What does this say about what's important to him? It's to show what truly matters to him is God's glory and your rescue and my rescue. See, what Jesus did here for these people in the first century Jerusalem, he's done for you and me through his finished work on the cross and in the empty grave. Because through dying and rising again, he has canceled the debt and made up for the deficit due to our sin and our shortcomings. So that we are not put to shame. And when our lives had led us far from God and left us stained from this world through the things that we have done or the things that have been done to us, he has worked in ways that we never could to cleanse us, to forgive us, to lift us up from all of that. So that now we are looked upon not as these filthy, unworthy messes, but we're looked upon with steadfast love, faithful to the end. And he has torn down every dividing wall between us and the Father so that nothing and no one can stand in between us. Nothing can overdo or outdo what Jesus has accomplished because now Jesus is the one who stands in between and he is linking both sides together through his sacrifice for us, uniting us through faith in him and his faithfulness towards us. Where we were lacking, his grace is sufficient. And he offers us this cup of everlasting joy that we can come and know our God and worship our God and know that this joy, this life is never running dry. It's never going away. And now as children of God and followers of Jesus, as the Christ-like ones on this earth, we are called to trust in his authority and to follow his priorities. In the Gospel of Matthew, the last thing that Jesus says to his people that's written down, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. I have authority over all creation. And therefore, because of my authority, I now command you to go out and share with the world what I have shared with you. He's saying, I'm in control of all of this. So now I want you to embrace what I have said and what I have done and what has been won for you and echo it to the world. Because there is a world outside caught up in the impossible task of doing enough or being enough in order to earn love, in order to find peace or cling to hope. When in reality, that love, that hope, that peace, that life that people are desperate for has already been freely given to them. It's already offered. Jesus is knocking at the door and he's saying, go and knock on the doors with me. Go and love people with me. Echo this to the world. P. 
people are dismayed and ashamed because they don't feel like they have enough to offer. There are people who are living in social stigma because they're a lower class. There are people who can not only just not supply a wedding feast, but are having trouble feeding people on the table. And he's saying, go and be the supply. Go and be my provision for them. There are people who are shut out spiritually and literally and physically because they are not part of the in-group of whatever society they're living in. There are people who are made to feel less than because they can't measure up to someone else's man-made standards. And Jesus is saying, look, go and tell the world, I've toppled that economy down. I've knocked over all these things that people are trying to say and do to divide and to push down and to oppress and manipulate a world that is starving for the gospel. And he's calling us, go be a sign that points towards the gospel. See, even inside of Christianity, we find ourselves going round and round over the what. What is going on in this book? What is the the right assessment of it? And Jesus is saying, ask yourself why I did these things. Ask me why I did these things. Don't seek to understand how to live a perfect life or measure up or try to do every single miraculous supernatural thing that Jesus did. We can't be Jesus, but we can be like Jesus when we understand why he moves and why we should be compelled to move as well. See, Jesus moved to take all these divisions and the products of our brokenness and replace it with the one who is better. Jesus moves to take all of our not enough and prove how he always will be enough for us. So our response to this ought to be to learn and embrace the heart and mind of our God, his priorities, to go and show others that the barriers have been broken, they are free from their chains, and the one thing that they are allowed to, that they ought to run to now for hope and joy and life and freedom is Jesus Christ himself. That's our part to play. This is what Jesus is saying, it's important to me, now I give it to you. Make it important to you. Follow in my footsteps. Be a sign that points to the gospel and join me on my ultimate mission to transform lives, to win them forever and show people the Father's heart and a life that never ends.